I wanted to go to law school. I don't know if I told him Harvard Law, but he laughed at me. He was like, okay. And then meanwhile, cut to not even six years later, I was at Harvard Law. So my first uh, tip is, you know, don't listen to to people that aren't in the position that you want to be in. I mean, he was an assistant basketball coach. At the same time, like, what a jerk. Like, adults can be really mean to kids. So I'm really sensitive when I'm around my mentees, too. Like, what you say can really affect someone. Hey Standouts, this is Yolanda Enoch, your host of How She Did It, the podcast where we explore the career paths of women of color. In this episode, I interview Kelly Shapiro, who is an attorney and advisor who has clients in LA, New York, and Philadelphia. We talk about a lot in this episode. We talk about her growing up black and Jewish. We talk about therapy. We talk about East Coast versus West Coast. We talk about her life at Harvard for law school. We had a blast. Oh, and she had really, really great tips on how to get comfortable with networking and how to find groups and people that can be mentors or how to really connect with people in your career. For links to the people and things that we discussed in this episode, go to YolandaEnoch.com forward slash 11. And now let's start the show. My name is Kelly Shapiro, and I am an attorney and advisor. Um, and I am the founder of the law offices of Kelly D. Shapiro, a solo um, practitioner uh, law firm here in Los Angeles and um, Philadelphia and New York. Um, the reason why I wanted to interview you was I have a couple, we have a couple of mutual friends. And when I started the podcast, one of them said like, oh, you need to interview Kelly. And then in a separate conversation, someone else said, you need to interview Kelly. So I'm so glad that we were able to get connected and interview you because everyone thinks that I should interview you. Awesome. You know, I think it's wonderful about those referrals um, and those recommendations because, you know, you kind of get stuck in your own day to day that you forget like you're doing something that not everyone else is doing and um, that people are interested in your in your path. So I'm very happy about that. And more and more that I go out and go to different events and stuff, people are like, really? You, you have your own loft? That's great. I'm happy you are doing what you are doing. So I'm more than happy to talk because I, I definitely know that people are interested to see how others kind of really broke from the chains of um, having kind of uh, corporate bosses and being a slave to this kind of idea of what it is to be a success, and, you know, kind of changing the narrative of how we can live our best life and kind of direct our own movie as opposed to just doing things that are safe and um, stable. So (laughs) okay, so let's go back to your early years. You grew up in California at the beach. 
Yep. Yeah. My mom still lives in the house that I grew up in, um, in Hermosa Beach and a bit in Manhattan Beach. That's where my father um, lived. My parents are both from the East Coast. My mom's from Chester, Pennsylvania. It's outside of Philly. And my dad's actually originally from Brooklyn. Um, They both left their hometowns a long time ago. My father, when he was 18, and um, he passed away this year at 74, but he always wanted to get out of the cold and to sun and sand. So whatever happened in New York left him to really, really only want to be in California. And his his career was really just real estate investor. And so he was the first person, even though I grew up with my mother, um, I did, he was my first look at, um, he never had a boss. He only, and I think that's one because his skill set wasn't someone who could work in an office, but also um, that's the way people who didn't come from money made you know, established wealth is buying property. And of course, in the 70s, buying real estate in California, be a bit more, you know, accessible than what it is now. But anywho, so he, um, so they met in Marina del Rey, actually, in the 70s. And um, my mother, actually, both my current parents, they didn't go to college. My mother, the only way for her to really get out of Chester, um, they said she was, she went to her guidance counselor, actually, she told me, and um, they said, well, you can't go to college, even though she was really smart, but they didn't have the money or whatever at the time. Wow. And they said she was too dark skinned to be anyone's secretary. She, she was like, well, F that. <laughs> um, but the way out, and especially in those times, was to go into the service. So she went into the Marine Corps in 1969. And um, yada, 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 she eventually was um, led to a, a career path of being an air traffic controller. And so she actually was given three choices, like after you go through boot camp and training, and she did most of that, like on the East Coast and in Virginia and whatnot. And then you get three choices, I guess, at the time of where you want to be assigned to be an actual air traffic controller. And she knew she wanted to get out of the cold. That was the one thing. I think my parents, they didn't really stay together a long time. They got divorced when I was four, but they both had a shared hatred of cold weather. So... Um, I think that's what they bonded on. And my mother picked her first choice, I believe was Atlanta because she knew people there, Dallas, she had a bestie there. And then Los Angeles was her third choice and she got Los Angeles. So yeah, so they met actually, my father was a um, small plane um, pilot. That was kind of one of his hobbies. And he called in once to the small airport she was working at at the time, liked her voice. This is all family lore, could be complete crap, but he apparently liked her voice, asked her out and picked her up. I was like, holy crud, you're black. And she was like, yep. <laughs> and later that year, um, they had my brother. Super cute story, right? Very Bronx taily almost, like in their own way. But sadly, it really didn't. <laughs> then they had me and then um, they got divorced when I was very young. They both, though, like beach. And so my mother stayed in the house that um, the kind of family home. And that's where I was raised in Hermosa, five blocks from the beach. But with the mother, from Chester, Pennsylvania, from the East Coast. So people a lot of times think I'm from the East Coast, but it's really because I was raised by my mother who had a lot of East Coast vibes. And also since she went to the service and was in the Marine Corps, P.S., 
that that's why she didn't suffer any fools. <laughs> I was very disciplined. She worked for the FAA and then kind of kept on raising in the ranks. She ended up just leaving actual air traffic controlling and just going into the actual um, like requirements office of the FAA. And she became pretty high up. She's pretty awesome. Um, but she also, she worked for one employer her entire life. So she's really old school like that. She kind of always wanted me just to have, get a job with the government. And I'm like, mom, those kinds of jobs aren't the same as they used to be. Growing up in Hermosa is very lonely. LA is a very lonely place, very isolating. So especially before you can drive, aka your childhood. Hermosa Manhattan is a very um, non-diverse area. <laughs> I'll just say that. My mother and my father, because he's Jewish, my mother is black. And so they both got it bad. My mother worse than my father, but both households were um, subject to, um, you know, racism and um, anti-Semitic taunts and stuff like that. So it was tough. I was also very overweight as a child, you know. So it just, I was definitely had a lot of time to read and to fantasize about, I can't wait to grow up and then I can be exactly what I want to be. What were you thinking you wanted to do at that age? So, you know, growing up as a kid, I didn't, I was figuring it out. I knew I was smart. My brother, my older brother, he's two years older, was always the quote unquote smarter kind of person. I was more of the social butterfly and would laugh all the time. And I think by the time I got into high school at Redondo Union High School, Redondo Beach, um, I started to learn about um, different things since I didn't have any access to any professionals, let alone, you know, lawyer in the family. So when I learned about Thurgood Marshall in history class, learning about the civil rights movements and the role of the lawyers, I was really, really impressed with how lawyers could really institute and make change on how different groups in society were treated. And so when I, when I studied Thurgood Marshall, and that was the first time I heard about Harvard Law School, if, you know, he can go there and that was the best. And, you know, growing up, you kind of figure out, you start hearing what schools are, what the Ivy League is, what all that, especially if you don't have anyone in your fam or friends or neighbors that have gone there. That was the first time me learning about that. And that's what really, really planted the seed about me wanting to be an attorney because I always wanted to be the voice of people who are unheard for whatever reason, didn't have the tools or the access or the resources to be their best advocate. So I always wanted to do that. I was much more interested in the civil rights and human rights going all the way up until law school. I think the majority of um, law students, I forget the, the stats, but that go into law school, at least at Harvard, was um, 90% going in wanting to do civil rights, human rights, whatnot, and then like 95% come out with um, corporate jobs. But it's also because instead of buying a house at 21 or whatever people do at 21, I got a house called Harvard Law School loan and it was, you know, almost $200,000. So, and so... College first, um, went to USC undergrad. You went to USC on a track scholarship? No, academic, um, mm-hmm. actually. You ran track. Though. I did, yeah. So um, in high school, which I hated, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't cool. I was overweight, bad hair, black and Jewish. I remember talking to my basketball coach, kind of down because I didn't date in high school. I didn't have a date to any, I didn't go to dances. I just read a lot, had like school jobs. And uh, I remember kind of confiding in my basketball coach, just looking at the popular kids and it looked like they were having so much fun. And he said, you know, Kelly, they're peaking right now. You want to peak in life, not at 17. So that kind of made me feel okay. But at the same time, the assistant coach of the basketball team 
laughed at me when I told him I wanted to go to law school. I don't know if I told him Harvard Law, but he laughed at me. He was like, okay. And then meanwhile, cut to not even six years later, I was at Harvard Law. So my first uh, tip is, you know, don't listen to, to people that aren't in the position that you want to be in. I mean, he was an assistant basketball coach. At the same time, like, what a jerk. Like, adults can be really mean to kids. So I'm really sensitive when I'm around my mentees, too. Like, what you say can really affect someone. I applied to USC and I actually got the best financial package. It was mostly academic scholarships and grants. That was the best deal for me. I didn't want to go into debt too bad for undergrad. The fact that my brother was there, even though we weren't super close, just to have someone there because I was so sheltered growing up in Hermosa and really, really was a late bloomer. I went to USC partly also because my brother was there and also because it was less than an hour away from my mom's house. So just in case, but I did join the track team as a walk-on. I was a super, super focused college student. Every minute of every day was like scheduled for me. Uh, between track practice, all my classes. That's where I first became kind of a translator. I was able to be uh, co-captain of the fields event since I threw the javelin and the, the hammer there and um, became really close with all my teammates. But half of them were from America, all over the country. Half of them were from Europe. And so there was such a cultural divide between, say, one of my teammates from Seattle or from Compton. And then them having an issue with my other teammate from Hungary or from Lithuania, and I'd be the middle person that could deliver the messages from each side and also share my <laughs> outlines and study notes with everyone. You know, the messed up thing with college athletics or just college in general, if you're on an academic scholarship, you get a complete full ride. Your books are paid for housing. If you're full academic, you still have to pay for books and housing, which is a lot. So it's interesting. So they'd give me their books because I couldn't afford it sometimes. And then in exchange, I'd give them, you know, my study notes and stuff to keep everyone eligible. And I started to slowly blossom, you know, started to get my weight together. Because you're an athlete, you got unlimited access to healthcare. So mm -hmm. instead of having limited amounts of time, you could see the college campus therapist, you could have unlimited. So that's the first taste of therapy. And I loved it. Having <laughs> someone to talk to. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm seeing you every week. And I did that for a couple of years. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And that's how I first started to really get to where I am now. Because if you don't start doing that work, you're going to, it's going to keep whatever issues or wh whatever you have to do. And everyone has a different path, but you got to work on, on that stuff to be able to be, I think, your, your best self. Now, thankfully, the stigma has gone away about therapy, but. I always have been a strong advocate of therapy. There's no way I would have gotten over my, you know, weight issues, my father issues, my being in it, if you don't really work that ish out. So a question about your therapy and you just mentioned your weight issues. You've mentioned those a couple of times and then it seems like that your parents, when they divorced, one parent decided to take one kid. Mm-hmm. Did the family issues contribute to the weight issues or how did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was basically, I was alone a lot growing up, right? So like my mom worked a lot. She worked a lot of like midnight shifts. I'd go with her sometimes even to like the Hawthorne airport when she worked there with my sleeping bag. But, you know, it was single mom life and she worked really hard, but I was lonely a lot. So I found something to do, aka let's find what we can make in the kitchen. And my father, he didn't really know how to parent. You don't need to show love with food. It's like show love other ways kind of thing. I'd aspire 
to be someone that could have a healthy coping mechanism to deal with stress. And now I do. I knew I was thinking big picture. (laughs) And I also started to keep my plans quiet because a lot of people, especially if you're (laughs) from a community of color or a woman or whatever the case may be, people will... If they're not happy, first, like, check your sources, but keep your plans quiet. So, like, when I was at USC, people would make fun of me. I remember I I lived with some basketball players over one summer, and I'd go to the – I started studying for the LSAT way earlier than most people would before, like, the formal classes started. But I'm like, oh, no, no, no. In my head, I had this plan. And I knew where I was applying and what my goals were, but I kept it mum. And people would make fun of me because I'd be at the library studying all the time. And I was just like, it's all right. And I didn't get invited to all the cool parties. I didn't really date, you know, whatever. But once my my law school admissions letters started to come in, you know, when I got into my quote unquote safety school, which was Georgetown early, I was like, okay. I was like, okay, but I kept mum until the day that I got the knock on the door with this big box and it was my admissions package package from Harvard Law, you know, when, when that happened, that was a game changer. Some people stopped talking to me and, and mean girls who were mean to me all this time would, they hated me. And I'm like, what? Like, and it's because they were more mad at themselves, I think. Um, or this guy in one of my pre-law classes, I remember saying, we we're sitting on the steps at USC. And when I told him, I was like, oh no, I'm going to Harvard Law in the fall. He was like, how'd you pull that off? I'm like, um, I've been studying like a mad woman and I'm on the track team. I'm in the human rights watch. I'm a mentor. I'm a this, like, what do you mean? Like I heard on your other um, podcast with Andrea uh, Guzman, when people, when she got into Stanford or, or her law school, it, people were like, oh, you got in because you're Mexican and you're a woman. And it's like, no, actually, it's because I kicked your butt on the SAT. And the people don't want to focus on that. They'd have to look at themselves, right? The success and stuff, you got to kind of keep that to yourself because there's a lot of peeps who aren't necessarily happy. And and I don't take it personal because The Four Agreements are one, was one of my favorite books. And I make sure my men, my men have to read that as soon as they are old enough to get it (laughs) and go straight into law school. I was a complete fish out of water, had never lived on the East Coast, barely visited. You know, I I love the academics of Harvard. The the social politics was interesting. You know, it was a different set of rules there. You know, first of all, since I wasn't coming from an Ivy League undergrad, you're already kind of like, people remind you that you're you're not a double Harvard or you didn't come from Brown or or Yale or whatever. But even though it's USC? Especially at that time, maybe now because it's more popular. But I, in retrospect, I'm very happy my background is what it is because I can see a difference between graduates of only Ivy League institutions versus not. I'm definitely more woman of the people. You know, I can hang out with the elites, but I can also, I'm a gen pop person too. I can easily navigate both worlds as opposed to peeps who are only in the Ivy institutions or only, you know, Danford or MIT. And that it's like, you're in this, these very, very small bubbles. Even if you don't have that in your heart to be kind of polarizing, it's still a polarizing effect. I mean, I had to get over the stigma of being a Harvard Law grad because it makes other people, it has nothing to do with you a lot. It's their insecurities. Okay. So at what point in your time at Harvard, or maybe it happened afterwards, did you go from, you said like 90% of people going to Harvard thinking they want to do human rights law, but Mm -hmm. then 
95% leave doing corporate. Was that your story or did it change later? So I go in and then the first summer, because everyone, and again, I didn't have anyone to really ask like how to do this. I had no idea about law firms, what it was to be a real lawyer. I wanted to figure out how to practice corporate law. I knew I wanted to understand business and stuff, but I also knew I still had that human rights passion in me. And so I applied to be a human rights fellow, meaning they would pay for you to, to serve as an intern within an NGO anywhere in the world. I ended up going to Jamaica and lived in Kingston, Jamaica, my first summer between first and second year of law school. And that was an amazing experience, just living in another country. I'm actually living in a black country was amazing. I worked at Jamaicans for Justice and I did some great work there on behalf of the rights of the child. So basically kids in um, orphanages within Jamaica and wrote this report on the rights of the child presented it to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, and ended up writing my thesis paper to graduate from Harvard Law about that work. That was a great experience. But that second summer, I knew basically talking to older students and mentors that I started to kind of amass because I knew I needed them because I didn't know what I was doing. They were like, you can do whatever you were kind of really want the first summer. But if you do want to go to corporate law, get a big law firm job after, you need to do it second summer. So then you get an offer and then that's where you go after you graduate. So I figured that out. And so that's what I did that second summer. I was way too intimidated by New York City. Had all these interviews in New York. Just It was just too much. Um, me coming from Hermosa and then even USC was a bubble. And then Harvard, I knew it was just too much. I called my mom panicking saying, I just don't know about this New York stuff. They say you can sleep in a cot in your office if you need to like work all night. And, and my mom said, well, don't they have law firms in Philly? And I was like, oh my God, you're right. And so I ended up just sending emails with my resume to random law firms in Philly, the good ones. And I ended up summering at a law firm there. One of the corporate attorneys um, there, Winston Lowe, is still my mentor to this day. And so I was there, fell in love with Philadelphia, fell in love with Philadelphia. What was it about Philadelphia that you liked? Uh, Philly is the only city, I say this to this day, the only city still now that has ever hugged me back. Yes, it was just so nice. Well, first of all, this it was it's such a livable city. Like New York, even if you're a baller, you're still like struggling. And Philly was like, I could live in a great area, walk to work, um, and then you run into buddies on your way. It was still folksy and it wasn't it wasn't that crazy and chaotic as New York. Philly was just amazing, and I met this great group of women when I was studying for the Pennsylvania bar, because not as many Harvard people, especially women of color, go to Philly. So I was kind of taken in by this group of girls who were Penn Law grads. And then I moved there permanently after graduation in 2005. I ended up becoming friends with The Roots, and you know, would start. That's how it started my entertainment law career, doing it pro bono for all my artist friends. And then, how did that started, happen? My next door neighbor, ha- or down the block, happened to be a mirror, aka Questlove. Started oh. to hang out. Yeah, just on a friend tip. And and I represent a couple of the roots now just on their, you know, their business interests and stuff. But it's all based on that early days. And it was just cool. Just a lot of love, especially in that time. You know, this is fresh off like the Black Lily, Jill Scott, Erica Badu kind of wave. And so Philly was a great place to be at that time. So that's why Philly is is so magical. So how did you, because I know when you introduced yourself at the beginning, you mentioned that you do work in L.A., Philly and New York. 
what brought the move back to LA? So we can skip over some of my dark years. Um, so Philly was great, but you know, the firm I was at, it was one of the best firms in the world, Reed Smith. Hey, shout out. And um, got that gig for another a woman of color who recommended me. I was always doing corporate law, but on the real estate and finance side. And that's only because I didn't know where else to go. I knew I had a little bit of real estate knowledge just because my father's real. And my mother was like a broker on the side for a bit in the 80s. But I literally didn't know. I didn't Even grew real estate finance. Nah. And there's definitely no like intellectual property or entertainment. There's that that's not really like a practice area. You know, Harvard is more um there's different schools like Yale is a different kind of law school education than Harvard. But it's kind of like are you going to go to a school that's more practical or more philosophical? And I think Harvard also because it's like a world-known school, it's not regional. So like if you go to a law school say like in Pittsburgh, they're probably going to have courses on oil and gas law. But at Harvard, they don't necessarily necessarily, at least at that time, they didn't have those kind of niche things. I actually didn't want to go into entertainment because growing up in LA, entertainment does not have a good reputation. I mean, that's coming out now, but I really didn't want to go into it. It wasn't until years later that I was pulled into it, mostly by a lot of people that I met back in the day in Philly who were still in entertainment, were tired of the lawyers that they couldn't trust. And were like, can you rep me for real now? So that's really how I got into it. And so, yeah, so I just went into this firm and, and I just went where got in where I fit in. I mean, listen, I learned a lot, had a great um, experience there, but the financial crisis happened, you know, the housing bubble, all that. And I was in the mortgage-backed security side, but on the commercial side. And then I was like, well, maybe I need to go back to California, take a break and either go to um, my firm's LA office. But the thing with being a lawyer is you have to be licensed where you practice. If you want to practice law, you're going to have to take the bar exam or waive in or, you know, just be in-house counsel for a company. That's one thing people need to know when want to be a lawyer, you are tied to your state of practice. So I took the bar in 2008, stayed at my mom, studied on the beach, was thankful for that, but still worried about how the hell am I going to pay back my loans. And and in Reed Smith, their LA office at that time, they only had any openings in the tax, which I had no knowledge or desire. So thankfully though, because of Harvard and the reason why I wanted to go to a school that was known, that's the one time I invested in the label. I had a headhunter contact me about a position in Seattle for a real estate investment company. And even though I was 27 and definitely shouldn't be anyone's VP of anything, at now in startup culture, now it's okay. But back then, that was not a thing. Turned out to be an insane same time to be in this company. I was only there less than a year. And the skill sets, though, that I learned by having such a high position in a company at such a young age actually served me so well years later, which is what in turn got me back to Cali. But another headhunter said, well, actually, I'm looking to help a law firm, an energy law firm, open their Pennsylvania office. You're barred in Pennsylvania. Hello. And so I was going to go back to Cali and figure it out. But instead, I went back to Pennsylvania and took this opportunity to start this firm's first East Coast presence to capitalize on the Marcellus Shale. It's a natural gas play. I was following the job. The thing that my mom taught me is that you better keep (laughs) a job and like you have to figure it out. Like no one else is going to pay back my loan. In retrospect, don't ever take a job in a city that you wouldn't live without job. So it wasn't in Philadelphia. It was about me, not the city. It just wasn't for you. It wasn't for me. But in retrospect, that experience there, the skill set I learned, and also I'm constantly the only person of color, usually the only woman of color. So regardless if I'm at a big firm 
or in-house or back at a firm in oil and gas, in finance, in corporate, there's not a lot of women and especially not a lot of women of color. I try to still think um, big picture and I knew I had to kind of crawl myself out of this corner I had backed myself in. As an attorney, and if you're commanding, you know, six-figure salary, those jobs aren't as, there's not as plentiful. (laughs) So, but it took me a long time to finally get back to LA. I was so incredibly homesick through, I actually got my law firm to send me to a conference for a week in LA. And during that week, I was like, Kelly, you're going to go on as many interviews as you can, and you're not leaving LA without a job offer. And that's what happened. I met with as many headhunters. I went on any interview I can get. I interviewed with this real estate investment trust in Malibu. For the first time, it was a job that I knew how to do so well. Was so happy just to be back. But at the same time, I had never lived in LA as an adult. So I had to learn how to live in LA, get, you know, start to build social network. I started to learn there and I knew elsewhere, but my managing skills was definitely greater than a lot of other attorneys. Some attorneys are just being good at being attorneys. I think um, sometimes when you're good at other things like social skills, and I think this is where USC comes in, especially coming back to LA where the Harvard thing is impressive, but just like at Harvard where they don't really care or know about USC in LA, especially in Malibu, Harvard is cool, but it's not like the same weight as on the East Coast. People do assume that you know a lot about everything, which is, you know, somewhat true, but I was also able to lean on my social skills and my, you know, empathy, I think also because I live so many places that I can get along with basically anyone. I was given so much responsibility. I was a head of different departments. I had a lot of people reporting to me. And I liked that. I liked being people's resource, their legal resource. You know, people would come to me even over their department heads because they knew I could talk to them and even deliver their message better to their supervisor than they could. November, December, 2014, I knew it was like, okay, I've been practicing law almost 10 years. I think I know what I'm doing at this point. I'm going to see about hanging my own shingle until something else comes along. And so I, I calculated how much runway I had. Is that a phrase that they teach you all in law school? It's a lawyer turn of phrase for sure. They don't teach you it in law school. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I had met people who hung their own shingle, especially when I'd go to like different um, conferences. I went to like the Black Entertainment and Sports Lawyers Association or Winter Music Conference I went to. And I'd see these people who were so young, like three years out of law school, and they hung their own shingle. And I'm like, I knew I I couldn't do it like that. I needed to figure out what the heck I was doing. And then I'd have the confidence. So like, good on you if you can do that. But I do, I still am kind of old school in terms of, nah, you need some life experience first before you start advising others about what to do with their business in life. Was there a particular situation that was the thing that said like, hey, maybe it's time to explore doing your own thing. I had always thought about it. And again, it was more a lot of my friends that I had met back in the day in Philly who were artists who are now getting much more, hello, Roots are now on the NBC. So it's like, hmm. And and I saw my, I wasn't getting to do fun things. I was working, I was missing every, every birthday party on the East Coast, every trip to Europe. I still hadn't been to Europe. I felt very insecure about that. 
because I either didn't have the time or the money. And when I had the money, I didn't have the time. When I had the time, I didn't have the money. I'm like, life shouldn't be about this. And I love my mom, but I didn't want to wait until I was 50 to start traveling, you know? So yeah, it, it just, it was a bunch of, a bunch of things contributed to me testing it out. So I started taking on clients um, that like December, but I still needed to like figure things out. Um, so I officially said, you know, the law offices of Kelly D. Shapiro were open January 2015. So I still really love working with people. And I still love that, that feeling that I got reading about Thurgood Marshall, even though I'm not doing civil rights, but I still am fighting for people who are either, you know, are in a situation that they didn't plan for or they just can't get out of and they just need that assistance. And I love being their representative and helping them get into better deals and just being able to thrive and, and also, you know, empowering them with the knowledge and the tools so they can be their own best advocates. Cause you're always going to be your own best advocate, but with, you know, the law is one thing where you do need someone who is familiar with, with the processes. So I love doing that, but I have to say me networking and putting my face out there and really being my best me. I mean, back in my corporate days, my Instagram, all my social media was private because, you know, you have to have a certain face. Even me going blonde, I didn't have blonde hair until 2014. And even when I started to get lighter and lighter, those peeps in Malibu, my other SVPs, some of them didn't like it so much. Like, oh, you're even blonder. And I'm like, yep. <laughs> but um, I mean, I had French tips on my nails basically all my professional life until I left, you know, because you're not you're not going to have chrome or a bright color. No, no, no. Like you're already black and a woman. So what made you decide to go blonde? Well, I always liked highlights um, ever since I have to say I didn't like how I looked for a very long time. It had a lot to do with my weight. So once I finally, you know, um, was able to get that together, I'm definitely my hair has always been such an issue because half black, half Jewish, man, curly. I mean, it's thick upon thick and it didn't do what I wanted it to do. I have to say a lot of my hair issues really came from my weight issues. Because I was always so overweight and I, I didn't like, my face was always so puffy. Having straight hair, it wasn't about having straight hair, like to look European. It was to thin out my face. Being a black or Asian woman or Latina going and having, especially I'm not even blonde, I'm platinum. You gotta be pretty ballsy and I am ballsy. Yeah, so I started to go blonder and blonder. I just started with doing more um, highlights in the beginning of the year and then by the end it was, no highlight. It was just all blonde. And, um, and then people, people treat you so differently when you're blonde. Oh my God. All of a sudden, even though I already was trying to be the most approachable, friendly person, come from a place of yes, just having that hair color, those vibes are embedded in blonde hair. I started to really realize that. And just like my light skin privilege, like, okay, I'm going to use your <laughs> messed up assumptions about what it is to be blonde, that blonde is good, blonde is, is fun, blonde isn't, you know, intimidated, it's more warm and is inviting, which is, by the way, what I always thought my personality and my spirit was, but if you need me to have blonde hair for, for you to feel that way, fine. <laughs> And, and I've been rocking with it ever since. And blonde also just matches my beat personality. And again, it's like I finally started to become the person that I always wanted to. I think as a kid, I would have went blonde early, but I didn't think it was for me. All I know is I like it. And that's the only person's opinion. And my dude, <laughs> that's the only, per you know what I mean? So I'm going to keep it 
keep it cute and keep it moving. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you decided to hang your hinges or whatever the phrase is. Shingle! Shingle! <laughs> I said hinges. <laughs> so you've been on your own. If someone else was on this path and thinking that they wanted to break out on their own, what would you say have been the skills that have helped you to be able to manage that? Because now it's like you're doing it all versus being under right. someone else. I think so. Um, I have to say I do miss. Well, I used to have a staff, right? A paralegals, assistants, a mail room. Like, and now I have to do all of that, right? But one, I don't have the ego that a lot of people do. A lot of lawyers do. So I'm like, I don't care. I'll mail my own thing. I, I I'll, you know. But having that um, administrative help now, like even now I'm struggling with, I need to find like a more permanent solution for an assistant because I do need that help. Like I can't do everything. The shingle was hung officially January, 2015. So I started to get really more involved with my law school association in LA. I'm on the board and with meeting more mentors or asking people to be my mentor. And one of my mentors, Terrence Yang, he was, he also went to Harvard law, uh, but now is mostly just a startup investor. He was putting together a panel on successful startups, founders and funders, how to get your startup funded and asked me to moderate it. And I said, absolutely. It's in Santa Monica. Cut to the panel in March 2015. And on the panel of startup founders was the CEO of a fashion tech company that was re-engineering the stiletto high heel. And I was like, that, that, comp- that sounds awesome. I'm on board. And she actually stayed in touch with me and said, I'd love to have you involved with some focus groups because your peers are like my demo. And I said, absolutely. Lo and behold, she started to vet me behind the scenes. So Dolly said, and this is the first time I've been approached to work for a startup. I really didn't know about equity versus cash. And she said, well, here's what I can offer you, but I need you to quit that job. Job. I want to fire all my attorneys and just have you come in-house and not just be the lawyer, but be my VP of GSD, which is getting shit done. And so I quit the firm the next day and um, joined that company, Thesis Couture. And I was in-house for a better part of two years. And I'm still of counsels, but I'm now like outside counsel, but and all the while still having the law offices of Kelly D. Shapiro open. And when I joined Thesis in June 2015, a lot of people were like, oh no, I'm so sorry that you had to give up your private practice and go. And I'm like, no, 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 no. First of all, you don't know what I'm doing. Second, in my employment, in my contract with Thesis, I made it understood and in writing, I still will devote 20% of my week to my own practice and my other clients. But then in this past year, I realized that I needed to be able to be free to travel wherever I needed for my other clients. Um, And earlier 2016, I had been recommended to DJ Jazzy Jeff's team as a lawyer for the past two years. And, you know, he has such a long career and different things that I I do a lot of work for him. Or also, I love stand-up comedy. And that's been my own, like, kind of solo passion for forever as just a consumer as I started to grow my practice, I'm like, I like stand-up comics a lot. I like DJs a lot. I'm going to represent mostly those kinds of people. <laughs> so half my practice now is entertainment clients and half are startups. But so I love helping my entertainment clients transition either to the tech and startup community or even my music clients. Making money in the music industry is much different than what it was in the 90s. And they have to let go of that idea. Mm-hmm. Like, so one of the things that um, I think is evident from talking to you is 
that networking and many people has been very key to the opportunity that you've received. Yes. So how do you approach that? Like, how do you, because I know a lot of people just don't have great social skills. So you go to an event, but like, what do you do there? And then what do you do afterwards to nurture and develop that relationship? Well, one, if you don't have great social skills, find someone who does, AKA me. And I'll go, I'm serious. I, I take specifically people who don't have the best. So I go to so many things. People will ask me like, can you let me know the next time? And I'm like, absolutely. But a lot of those people don't then show up. So you got to one, show up <laughs> and then follow up. Like I, I'm sometimes bad with doing the follow up, but I don't care if it's two years, two weeks later, two years later, whatever. As long as you follow up, the sooner the better. And then follow them on social media because some people can't then follow up with an in-person meeting, but social media, stay connected that way or send an email or say, hey, I'd love to you know, pick your ba- brain. Like, so you don't mind people reaching out to to say, because I hear different things. Like, oh, I want to pick your brain. Like, well, it also depends if it's like a warm intro. So like I, I spoke at the Black and Brown Founders Project this year in Philadelphia, and I love doing that because all these founders came up to me and they're mostly black and brown, right? So we don't have the same access to mentors. Like I, I remember listening to your podcast with Andrea and the fact that she had a mentor at her law firm or whatever that would go through all of her assignments. I'm like, that sounds it's crazy. Yeah. So I'm like, well, I didn't have that. But um, for us, you know, and she's us too. But, you know, for those of us who don't have that, you know, going to these events, going to these meetups, meetups are great, but you just have to like keep the fire kind of going. You just have to keep getting out there. You're not going to make con- that many connections thing behind your computer or your phone. Um, and you also have to make time to get out from your even corporate job while you're still trying to, um, you know, work on your side thing. But so if I get a cold, hey, can I pick your brain? That's here's my consultation fee. If I get a warm, hey, you spoke at this conference with my mentor, Mandela, she said I should contact you or, or even if their connection then says, hey, can I introduce you to one of my students? So if I get a warm intro, sure, take me to lunch or, or sure, take me to coffee. So if you have good energy and you also have done your homework, like, why are you contacting me? What do you want to do? And I'll definitely, especially if I can tell you just need a little confidence boost, I'll absolutely sit down with someone. All right. So that is all of my questions. And now I'm going to take you through like a couple of rapid fire questions and just say the first thing that comes to your mind. So when you need a boost of confidence, what do you do? I read either the daily word. That's I'm not religious at all, but I am into, you know, spirituality or whatnot. So I'll read my daily word and there will always be something in there that will say, you know, just breathe out. I got that from my godmother, who's also like one of my spiritual advisors. She's so just positive and enlightening and she'll just get me right. Like it'll just be like, Kelly, no person or thing has any cause or effect on me. Boom. I'll also just look at look at my face in the mirror and be like, Kelly, you should be so proud of you. And I'll reach back into little Kelly, who'll be looking in the mirror when I'm eight with my puffy fat face and my hair that was cut off by my father and all these things and be like, and just give myself, give little Kelly Jr. a little like hug, like you are doing it. And, and I think also that's where physical activity, I'll go out for a run or I'll do something, either yoga or meditation, especially now in the era of YouTube, you can pull something up 
that will get your, your mind right. So what are five apps or services you can't live without? Um, Audible. Because I, I listen to a lot of books, especially books that will get you confidence back or even about in your expertise, you know. And then I have to say my podcast apps because I'm a podcast nerd. So like listening to all my comedy podcasts, I'll do a comedy over a drama any day. My, my music app and then... Uh, class pass because mm-hmm. I'm such a fitness junkie. I can just go into any class that's around like, you know, Ooh, I'll pop into a spinning. I'll pop into a kickboxing NPR, I guess. And then um, I have to say Instagram because that is more for my business and my personal, even now, like I also, I repost like client stuff or I'll be contacted by possible even people actually I had a member of tribe called quest hit me on there because we had met in person but then that was the way he found me because he needed my advice so Instagram is actually a tool for work and fun and and it also is me connecting like I'm going through the egg freezing process right now and on my Instagram story I post that and I'm getting all of these great this great feedback from women who did the same thing but no one likes to talk about it and then my other app is probably, I mean, PayPal, because I send a lot of invoices through there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so because we've been talking for a while, I want to respect your time. But other than the four agreements, what's another book that you recommend someone listen to on Audible? Ooh, one, um, You Are a Badass. Jen Sincero, that's a goodie, talking about confidence. And then The Power of Now, I, I'll fall asleep to a lot. Another book, anything by Malcolm Gladwell is pretty good. Oh, and then This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol and Find Freedom or something. That's the book that I just needed. I had been wanting to quit drinking for a while. And actually, Arlen Hamilton, who's the founder, managing partner of um, Backstage Capital had posted this book a few uh, months ago. Actually, no, earlier this year. And I said, hmm, maybe I should check this. That, oh my, I listened to that book. Speaking of Arlen, and not to say that you be your answer to this question, but one of the questions I like to ask people is, who are your possibility models? So these are like women of color who inspire you and show you that it's possible to live your dreams. Who are some of those for you? Um, so one, I have to say, it goes back to Philly, um, Disha Dyer. I had met her. We, we kicked it a little bit, but not tough in Philly. Years later, when I was kind of coming out of my dark days um, and coming back to LA and whatnot, she ended up taking an internship, I believe at age 31, which is far later than, and a lot of people are so insecure about doing an internship as an adult because it's like, no, I'm not 22. It would be, you know, crazy. She took, she was older than any of the other interns in the White House, yada, yada, ended up being social secretary for the Obama administration. The fact that now she just tours speaking and she, she started her own nonprofit, um, encouraging girls of color to travel, raise a girl who travels. So, and the fact that she's so fearless and used to be like kind of reprimanded for having a quote unquote big mouth, but now she gets paid for talking about these issues and being so unapologetically her looking at her and what she's done um has been great i think bozoma is saying um is it saint john, saint john. I, yeah the fact that so i've always looked different but the fact that now i have this platinum hair i can wear whatever the heck i want and still though i'm a respected attorney seeing bozoma just wear whatever she wants and just that's actually a part of why she's as great as she is She's definitely someone that um, is inspirational. So seeing her or her even 
be so graceful after the tragedy of losing her husband, but still being a great mom. Of course, Michelle Obama has been one of my heroes for a very long time. Oh, also, Janique Seeley is one of my girlfriends who she was only a couple years older than me in law school. And she's an author of two books because I asked her for, for some advice. Like, how did you do it? You came out of law school and went straight working for a record company. And I read a couple of her books and she used her Harvard law degree as like an insurance policy. She's like, I'm going to do whatever I want. And then that's in my back pocket. And I can always rely on that. Her latest book is called Regroup. And it's about learning from your failures and that we need to talk more about failures. And then I think finally, um, meeting and working with Cindy Whitehead. She um, is the billionaire founder of basically the female Viagra. She founded this incubator. It's called the Pinkubator. Her passion now and her purpose is she wants to make women rich. She wants to make more. She's like, the only way we're going to really change the narrative is more rich women that can then fund and invest women. So she had this billion dollar exit for her company, but she had good lawyers on her side. Shout out to the lawyers. And she was able to get the drug back because, and now she basically, there's a story in Forbes about how she was able to get her billion dollar company back for free. So she's badass. And and she moves so like clean, like you don't even know like, oh yeah, I got my billion, <laughs> like, and I kept the billion. So she's just so fly. And she's also out of North Carolina, which I love because that's my extended family is that's outside of North Carolina. Okay, so if people want to find you online, where should they go? Oh, Instagram at Malibu Kelly. And then Twitter is Kel Shap, K-E-L-S-H-A-P. And then um, my website, kellydshapiro.com, D as in Danielle. Um, and you can send me a message on my website and I'll get back to you. Okay, final question. If you could go back in time and give your younger self some career advice, what would you tell yourself? Um, I'd say it's tough. I'd say pay more attention in class and in, cause I was such an easy, you know, things came easy to me that I could do well on tests, but I, I wish I kind of, you know, paid a bit more, more focus, less on social, but I was social committee chair naturally in law school. So I think that, but I think also reaching out and asking for help more and not being afraid of looking stupid or just saying, can you even look this over? Because I don't know if this is right or asking more people, you know, for at different career points, like I can't find a job here or should I stay at this job a little longer? Not knowing that, oh, yeah, you should stay past this mark. So, you know, your stock vest. I didn't know. So things like that, I would say. But um, and also just never letting fear hold you back from doing anything um, and, and, you know, wasting years somewhere or at some place or with someone so you, you know, just to cut that time down so you don't have to reclaim your time, as Mother Maxine told us. On to Maxine. Yes. <laughs> and that's our show. For links to the people and things discussed in this episode, go to the show notes page at yolandaenoch.com forward slash 11. The background music for this episode is Lip Gloss by Poddington Bear. Introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Sure. Oh, I should probably close my... (laughs) My emails from pinging. Um, 
Sorry, you want to start again? This is the worst start. <laughs> um, oh, you can edit. Sorry. All right. 